So a few weeks ago, someone attended here on a Sunday morning who hadn't come in about eight months. The last time they were with us was when we were meeting over at Harbor Church on Sunday afternoons at four o'clock. And when he left, most recently, a few weeks ago, he said, man, something's different about your community. Something's going on here. God is up to some new things. And he's absolutely right. There's some new things happening at Reality Church. So we now have a new building. It's actually about one year to the day when we signed to close, September 14th of last year, which then kicked off a fall of renovation projects and work parties. Good news, no work parties this fall. (laughs) No floor to install downstairs. Um, We now have people from five different countries from around the world that are part of our church with at least four different languages being spoken among us. And usually in the Pacific Northwest, summers on Sundays can be a ghost town. And I don't blame people. It's nice outside. (laughs) Go enjoy the weather. Uh, But not this summer. This last summer, we've actually had a lot of new people and new families and returning of some familiar faces as well to our community. Which is why today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the values of Reality Church. Uh, So next week, we're going to start our new fall series. And I had a few people ask, what are we doing next? Um, We're actually going to do a series this fall on the Lord's Prayer. Because we say it every week, it may be helpful for us to understand the heart of what we're praying together. So we're going to do that next week. We'll be in the Lord's Prayer for most of the fall. Um, But with so much change in the last year, a new building, new people, literally cultures from around the world together with us, I figured it may be important for us to do a little bit of refresh. Who are we as a church? What are we about? What are we hoping for here in our community? So I could talk about, you can go to the next slide, I could talk about vision And we will talk more about vision and mission. We want everyone to experience Jesus and his kingdom come. Uh, We do seek to make disciples by cultivating intimacy with God, with others, and for others. Um, We are a community, right, that's being formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of the world. Uh, But for this little time that I have today, I figured maybe my most... uh, the biggest bang for my buck would be to talk about our values as a church. There are five values that we have named as leadership that we want to experience in our church life together. Uh, And if you maybe aren't familiar with kind of this conversation around vision or mission or values, I've heard one person describe it this way, that if vision is where we're going, the destination of where we're going, and we want everyone to experience Jesus and his kingdom come, and mission is the way we get there, then our values are the things that we will experientially have along the way, what we'll experience along the way. What will it be like as we try to experience these things? And we're hoping that these five things would be true, that would mark our lives and our community together. Most churches, I know not all churches, but most churches that I know want to make disciples of Jesus. Most churches I know 
will say we want to glorify God. Most churches want to teach the scriptures. Most churches want to encourage others in the way of Jesus. I know not all churches, but most. But the question today is like, what then is uniquely, particularly marking of our little Jesus community? We're a part of the greater, bigger body. There's many churches in Thurston County, but like what, what is unique? What's, what's happening behind the red doors? What's going on in that church community that's meeting now off 4th Avenue? Here we go. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verse 18. Here we find a really brief snapshot in some conversations around the ministry of Jesus. Matthew writes, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now obviously this is only five verses. It's a little window, a little snapshot into a bigger book that's dedicated to the life and ministry of Jesus. There's a whole lot we could talk about But if you drill into these specific verses and this specific interaction, you find Jesus saying some things that are really distinct, maybe even a little odd or strange, maybe a little outside of the box. So this interaction comes on the heels, verses before Jesus has been healing people. And whenever you heal people, you gather a crowd. That tends to happen. (laughs) And Jesus tended to gather a crowd. Did he not? There were a lot of people that were eager to be around him, and his reputation preceded him. And so there were lots of people looking for food. And this guy can make a feast out of a sack lunch. People looking for love. And Jesus made them feel loved and welcomed, people looking for healing, and Jesus had supernatural power. So verse 18, as this little story begins, this section begins, verse 18, the crowds are coming, and what does Jesus do when the crowds gather? Verse 18, he immediately says, let's go to the other side. Jesus, that's not strategically sound. That's not how you make a movement. Jesus, that's not how you go viral. Here's the little secret about Jesus. Jesus isn't primarily motivated 
to draw a crowd. Jesus' prime motivation isn't, let me get as many people as possible to be in my crowd. Then verse 19. A scribe, a religious leader, a Jew, comes and declares his intent to follow Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Which then causes Jesus to launch into a quirky little teaching about foxes and birds. He sounds like Yoda here. (laughs) Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. He says, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this person says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, basically, I am homeless. Which again, you're like, Jesus, come on. You're not helping the cause here. But Jesus says, I, I, I don't have a vacation home, and I don't have a home. I don't even have a pillow. And the birds and the foxes have more possessions than I do. So you begin to like pick up on kind of the, the culture of the Jesus following here. Jesus is not primarily concerned with crowds, and Jesus is not primarily concerned with comfort either. It's like, what is this thing? Then verse 21, here comes another disciple, another person that engages Jesus. He's like, hey, I would love to follow you, but first I must go and bury my father. So it appears that his dad has just died. Now, I think culturally there's more going on here. Probably at this point, if he's talking to Jesus, his dad didn't just die right away. It's a whole other thing. But he says, let me go first bury my father, which causes Jesus then, who usually responds with deep compassion and empathy, tenderness. Jesus is like, yeah, go let the dead bury their dead. Like, man, Jesus is a little prickly today. What's, what's his deal? It's a little rough on the grieving, don't you think? Jesus isn't concerned primarily about drawing a crowd. He's not concerned primarily about comfort. And he isn't afraid to speak hard words. Words that may be hard for us to hear. Words of truth. So do, you, do, you, do you see it? Even just in a few verses here, do you sense it? Do you see it? Jesus is up to something different. Jesus has a different agenda than most. Jesus has a different vision of the good life. Jesus has a different vision of success. And he's willing to lay it out there and let people bounce off of it. Make a decision about it. And Jesus is so supremely confident in the beauty and value of the kingdom that he's preaching, 
that he's willing to say, here it is. What are you going to do about it? Even if it's countercultural. Jesus comes offering a distinct, different vision of life. And he gives people plenty of opportunity to decide how they will engage it. Even if it's not popular or convenient or comfortable or a feel-good message. But it was clearly available to anyone who wanted it. He invited others to experience it for themselves. So, like, how are you going to share the values of our church? I am. But what I'm about to share with you is the values of our church. I'm just telling you, it may not draw the biggest crowd. And it may not lead to your comfort. And it may not be convenient. In fact, some of our values as a church has offended some people in the last few years. With, I'll, I'll just name, is both painful and powerful. But here we are as a church, and when we say here we are, um, we're trying our best to align with the ways of Jesus, and we get to bounce off those and make decisions. So to those who want to cultivate intimacy with God, with others, for others, here are the five values of our church. Here's first one. I even made graphics for you. Maybe this will <laughs> stick in your brain. First one, health and flourishing. Health and flourishing. Here's the, here's the little statement around health and flourishing. We are a church where everyone pursues practical and sustainable spiritual growth in all areas of life. As employees, citizens, parents, children, and neighbors, flourishing is sustainable for all, not at the expense of those who serve. In our church, we care about your soul and not just your role. What does Jesus say in John 10.10? Maybe you know John 10.10. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. And not just like meager life, not just like eke it out life, but life abundantly. That's That's the vision of life that Jesus says, I've come to offer you life abundantly, flourishing, health, vitality. I'll tell you, there's been eras and part of my life and journey where I'm like, man, this doesn't feel like life. All throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, there's this repeated imagery of a tree. Lots of trees in the Bible. They're obviously in the creation story. You'll find trees at the end of the story in Revelation. But the trees I want to talk about specifically, it's Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17. It's the same tree described. It's a picture of a tree planted by rivers of water that bear fruit in its season. The leaves don't wither, and whatever it does shall prosper. There's this idea of being a tree rooted and grounded with a source of life, a source of energy, a source of vitality, that you don't fear the drought. You actually have something to live from and live on. Health and flourishing. (laughs) The way of following Jesus impacts all of our life, every area. 
And this is not a sprint, my friends. It's a marathon. It's a journey for a lifetime. And I know many people who have followed Jesus for six months or followed Jesus for a year or even followed Jesus for a decade but have not finished well. We're human beings, divine image bearers. We are not cogs in a religious machine. And so our hope and desire in our church is that you wouldn't be a cog in a machine, but uh, allowed and encouraged to flourish with a source of life and vitality, that we care about your inner life and your outer life, that we don't just get busy doing stuff for God and we miss out on being with God. So this impacts, again, our work, our emotions, our thinking, our play, our parenting, our citizenship, our singleness, our neighboring, our bodies. God wants us to live in a way where we flourish, not shrivel and die. So that has implications for our schedules, for our rest. You notice this summer we shut down our kids' class, second grade through fifth grade, because we didn't have teachers. We're not just going to burn people out. We get all, those even who serve, get to flourish too. We honor the Sabbath. We have seasons of service. We want to invite you to cultivate practices in your life that will allow you to follow Jesus in every part of your life for a long time. All right. I got four more to get through. (laughs) Biblical justice. Here's another statement. We are a church that speaks up and takes action on behalf of the oppressed, the poor, and the needy. And if you need a Bible verse, that's Proverbs 31. Because of God's call to justice and righteousness, we pay attention to and take action on behalf of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor. The gospel leads us to join with God where he is at work, giving humanity what they are due as his creation. So over the past three years, I'm not sure if you noticed, but the words justice, social justice, woke, have become a dividing point in our country, in our churches, in our communities, in our school boards, in our school districts, all over the place. It's caused a lot of pain, relational fracturing, dividing of camps, name-calling, Here's what I think is really important on this matter, is I really have a heartbeat that people will read the Bible and let God define this topic and not just cable news. We let the scriptures speak. What are we for? What is justice? What does biblical justice look like? Because in the Bible, there are two sides to the justice coin. There's a negative side, there's the punishing of those who do wrong, but there's also the positive side of giving people what they're due. There's a scholar, Herman Bavink, says in the Bible, God's justice is both retributive and reparative. It not only punishes evildoing, but it restores those who are victims of injustice. And while we're at it in the Bible, we'll throw some Bible words out here. Mishpat, it's the Hebrew word for justice, is rarely named alone. Mishpat and tzedakah, justice and righteousness. Righteousness and justice. Two sides of the same coin. And again, you can throw those verses up. 
Proverbs 21 talks about righteousness and justice. It's desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 23, do justice and righteousness. Amos 5, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So biblically speaking, these two ideas are conjoined concepts, righteousness and justice. And righteousness is more than just a moral, personal purity under the law. Righteousness is something that you do. Something to be done, doing righteousness. It's about a life of right relationships. Conducting your day-to-day relationships in family and in a society with fairness, generosity, and equity. If you read the scriptures, God actually has a high concern for a particular group of people. Uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, it's a real name, he coined this phrase, I think I've used it before, he calls it the quartet of the vulnerable. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, God is particularly concerned about the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. That's the quartet of the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor. And what do those have in common is their vulnerability in society. They often get mistreated. They often get overlooked. They often do not get what is due to them as image bearers of God. And so God says, I see them, I know them, I care for them, and my people will too, because they share my heartbeat. Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, O man, what is good. This is not new. This has been a part of his heartbeat from the beginning of the story. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Doing justice, biblical justice, is rooted in God's character and it remains God's calling for all of his people for all time. I've shared this in the past year. This is why, like from my, it's our reading of scripture is why when World Relief said, hey, we're opening up an office in Thurston County, we did not have to have a prayer meeting to discern it. We did not have to say like, God, what do you think? Should we help out with refugees? It's like, oh, I've read the scriptures. Yes, where do we sign up? How do we help? What do we do? How can we throw whatever we have relationally, financially, strategically in the ring to help as best we can? And as a result, we've had these families come and join us. And I'm telling you, we have won that one. We have benefited from that. We have been forever changed. But I think the reason why we were ready to say a quick yes is because of this value. We were looking to say, how do we help? Where are, the eye, where are the eyes of God looking and scanning and seeing for opportunity? Which then pairs really well with our third value, generous hospitality. Generous hospitality. Here's our little blurb. We are a church that loves the stranger and offers the radical welcome of the Father to those near and far. Like, it's our privilege 
to extend the warm welcome of the Father to those around us. As we have been welcomed in Christ, which if you stop to think, how have we been welcomed in Christ? Unbelievably so. God didn't even spare his own son in welcoming us. As we have been welcomed by God, we then get to welcome others. We model God's pursuit through invitation. We don't have to have insider-outsider language, but we provide intentional care for the needs of others. Not making them a project or a target, but people to extend the warm welcome of the Father to. So what is hospitality? Uh, Author Henry Nouwen says that for most of us modern Americans, hospitality conjures up images of tea parties and bland conversations and coziness. Rosaria Butterfield says modern hospitality for many is like Victorian tea, crocheted doilies, and China-inspired paisley-patterned teacups. That's not what I'm talking about with hospitality. Hospitality in its most basic sense in the scriptures is the Greek word philoxenia. It means the love of the stranger. When you hang out with your friends for free, it's called leisure. When you try and engage new people for free, it's networking. We're not talking about entertainment where you pay someone to have a meal. There's a whole entertainment industry, a hospitality industry around food and drink and restaurants. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about loving the stranger. And I love Rosaria Butterfield's quote. If you ever want to read a really good book, it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she says, radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Here's our strategy. Here's our strategic plan. Use your Christian home, which includes your car and your living room and your dining room, and your tables. Use your Christian home. You have one, most of you. Use your Christian home in a daily way that looks for opportunities to invite those who are strangers to become a neighbor and a neighbor into the family of God. And I would say we are not perfect at this as a church. But I love to see what's brewing And our hope would be on Sundays as you come here, you would experience the warm welcome of the Father. Our prayers on Sundays, but also on Mondays and Saturdays and Thursdays, in your home, in your car, in your workplace, in this building, in this space too, that we would be able to extend the warm welcome of the Father to others. Hospitality is offering a ride. I'm just curious, how many people in our church have given a ride to someone this last year? Thanks for being hospitable. In a church now that has multiple languages, putting words on screens in different languages is hospitality. Hospitality is having an awkward conversation with Google Translate. (laughs) Just curious, how many of you have used Google Translate in the last year? 
It's sharing a meal. It's giving clothes. It's playing soccer. It's inviting over to watch a game. Generous hospitality is the way of Jesus. It's how he welcomed us to himself. Do you remember how you were welcomed in to the kingdom? Do you remember how the Father pursued you? We get to go and do likewise. Two more. Committed community. Here's our statement. We are a church that operates with a sense of biblical family where people can belong before they believe and do the journey of faith together with others. 1 John 3.17 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Man, that's a statement that we are children of God. Children of God, the family of God. Pick your metaphor. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So many pictures, so many words, so much imagery. Common thread is this, committed community. We believe that the with God life must be done in the company of others. Or to put it another way, that the with God life is not a solo venture of just you and Jesus. Now you and Jesus get to have a really big part of that. But it's never meant to be done alone. God in his very essence is community. We are Trinitarian. We worship a God who is three in one. I've said this before. At the center of the universe is a community of eternal love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's like at the very center of the universe is this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That may have some implications for his church. Jesus, the perfect human, the sinless one, did life in committed community, right? He didn't do it alone. Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit in constant communication with the Father. And then on this plane, relationally, Jesus had his three, Peter, James, and John. And he had his 12 disciples. And then he had his 72 that he sent out. And then there were the crowds that showed up for more food and healings. But Jesus lived life in committed community. The with God life is an invitation to be in the company of others. Now maybe to clarify, that doesn't mean that everyone has to be an extrovert. Just to be clear, I'm not. I'm a social introvert. It doesn't mean you have to have a billion friends and always be going and doing a million things with everybody. No, 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 no. That's not the vision of the life of God. Bless you if you are an extrovert. Bless you if you want to have a million friends. But we are called in this life together. We believe that change happens not just when I read something and think about it, but change happens as I externalize things with others and we practice with others. The journey is meant to have companions along the way. 
So it's why we say, again, we, we do this thing here often on Sundays, but there's more to church than Sundays. The Christian journey is not meant to primarily be around a stage, but around a table in real life with real conversations. That's why we have table groups. We'll talk more about those next week. And we have community groups, and we have women's Bible studies and men's studies, and other trainings and opportunities, because, again, we're not trying to say that you're like a varsity Christian if you do more, and JV, and C-team if you do less, but we want to provide opportunities for you in your particular way to have committed community where you are known and loved, that someone would know if your soul is wandering, they would know if you're not doing well, that someone would know what you're wrestling with God about that someone would know the particulars of your story, that you'd be in committed community together. Last one. Fire. Kingdom imagination. Here's our statement. We are a church that exists for the greater kingdom, something bigger than ourselves. We pursue community over hyper-individualism, engagement over consumerism, and partnership over competition with other churches. Our most basic reference point is the kingdom of God. You see, if you listen to Jesus talk a lot, and you watch the way he teaches and the things that he emphasizes, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. When his, his first message is, repent, Believe in the kingdom, the good news. He talks about the good news. The gospel is not just a gospel unto itself. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. And the idea of the kingdom is the king's domain. It's the reign and rule of God. The rule and reign of God on earth here as it is in heaven, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer so often. So as we think about life and ministry and church, we want to have a kingdom-minded imagination where we aren't just obsessed with ourselves or even being obsessed just with our church. But as Jesus says, that we would seek first the kingdom of God. It's why each week we pray for other organizations. It's why we seek to partner and pray for other churches. If you see us waving a flag, the flag that we wave is not just the flag of the United States. It's why there's a global map with many flags on the wall. And the flag that we wave is not the flag of reality church. It's not the flag of a particular tribe. We want to be waving the flag of Jesus and his kingdom. So we love to partner with others. We don't believe we are the be-all, end-all of the kingdom of God. We don't think we're the only church in Thurston County. We want to partner with others, work with others. And for health and flourishing of the capital C church in Thurston County, it's going to take the church working together. And it's going to happen beyond the walls of buildings, church buildings. And it means it's going to take Christians who take seriously their vocation as ministry in schools and workplaces and neighborhoods and soccer fields and movie theaters 
seriously as places where the kingdom of God is moving. It takes time. It takes imagination. But what a beautiful thing God is doing among us and in the world, redeeming from every tongue and tribe and nation. Next slide. One more. So hopefully you got the idea is flourishing. We want, we want health and flourishing, not this grinding out, <laughs> but like a cog in a machine, grinding out, flourishing. Biblical justice over selective preference. Lavish hospitality, generous hospitality over polite selfishness. A lot of churches are very polite and very selfish. Committed a community over hyper-individualism, kingdom-minded imagination over me-first consumerism. And again, we may not have the biggest show. In fact, it's not the biggest show. We don't have the greatest production value. We may not have the most flashy programs or alluring graphics. But we're going to continue to offer an invitation into this way. I think it's beautiful. I think it's truthful. I think it's good. And we invite you to come be a part of the life of our church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this little community that you have formed here. And we're grateful for this building that you've planted us in this neighborhood. Grateful for each person sitting in the room today, those watching online, those who are part of our, our church community. Lord, we would ask in the ways that we know and the ways that we don't yet even fully know, that you would keep shaping us and molding us and knocking off um, the, the edges that are more about ourselves and maybe more about American culture than the kingdom of heaven. Would you reshape us into your image? We believe that the good news of the gospel is the best news in the world and that the kingdom of heaven is here and not yet in Jesus. So God, I pray for those who are far, in a sense, maybe geographically far, not really thinking about you, but we know, Lord, you're near. Would you use our community, our own health, I mean, we have something to offer, our own hospitality, our sense of protecting and loving and caring for those that you care for, Lord. May all of that bear fruit, for your name, for your glory. May you make us disciples who know you, who walk with you, who are shaped by you and love in your name well. Help us, Lord. We know we don't have it all figured out, but help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.